Welcome to episode number 30 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And today we welcome in a special guest, uh, someone that I know know personally, uh, having met at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytic Conference several years ago uh, and have remained in touch with Colin Davey, the former director of data science at the Action Network, Jeopardy champion, which we'll definitely talk about, and now the founder of Betscope, which you can check out at betscoper.com. Colin, how are things going? Hey, Rob. Hey, Johnny. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, I, I, I think it's uh, obligatory that we're just not like conference colleagues. We are known survivors of maybe like the ground zero of the COVIDiest COVID room uh, in that cigar bar in Boston. I think like it, that will be one of those locations that we're all going to look back at and be like, my God, how little we knew at the time. It definitely was. Um, it was crazy because uh, about a week before that conference, which would have been March of 2020, my wife was basically telling me, Rob, you can't go to this. And I'm like, Diana, my wife's name, you're nuts. Like you're way over exaggerating. Like COVID's not even a thing here yet. She's like, you're going to come back with COVID. I'm like, I'm not going to come back with COVID. We, <laughs> we spent the night at a cigar bar and uh, somehow like three quarters of us caught COVID, but others didn't. Very weird virus. But uh, luckily, I mean, I'm diabetic. So I came out, it, it lasted a month. I had COVID for a month. But uh, uh, yeah, that was that was definitely an interesting night, Colin. I learned yeah, I, I remember having the exact same conversation with my partner. She was saying like, don't go, you're going to get it. I'm like, no, it's overblown. It's at the West Coast at most. And I remember Rufus and I actually in the hallways of the conference debating, you know, like if this is going to become a thing, like, should we be hoping that we get it like now while there's still hospital capacity? And we're like, you know what, maybe that's not a bad trade. So I will actually take the L for the group because I put that out into the universe. And apparently like I am on some Oprah shit that I don't even know about where I can manifest it in reality. So consider this my formal apology to you, Rob, for manifesting COVID in that room. So I learned, I learned a while back not to bet with Rob on anything. He's, a, <laughs> he's typically a pretty, he's a pretty solid better and obviously he understands odds. But uh, when we were at we were at a different bar, Rob and I, the night before that, and uh, he was like, "Yeah, this COVID thing's going around," and I was like, ah, "I don't like I don't think we're gonna get it. Like I haven't heard much about it." And it, obviously, this was before it was a, a really big thing. And uh, I was like, "What do you think the chances are that you'll get COVID on this trip?" And he and he was like, he looked at me, he's like, "Ah, I'd say probably about fifty fifty." And I was like, what? I was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, there's no way it's 50-50. And he was like, yeah, I'd say some people at this conference are going to get it. And then thank God I didn't bet him because I would have laid probably minus 10,000 that he did get COVID. I did like at the time, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. I'm like this guy's crazy. But uh, yeah, Rob, you know, you learn it. Don't bet against Rob. And any, anyone who, who's ever bet with him on Twitter knows that as well. Yeah, it is. It was interesting having a gambling and risk and mathematical perspective in February 2020. I feel like the sport, anyone in the sports betting card probably knew how this was going to play out. And it's a very like doomsayery in that month before. I was definitely in that position where I got a bunch of crazy looks saying, you have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm like, no, I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. So the plus sign is we got to do our stockpiling at Target before the lines got too crazy. So this whole gambling thing kind of pays off in unexpected ways for uh, all of us. 
All right, Colin, let's, uh, for the listeners out there, g- give everyone a, a brief background of, of who you are, uh, where you came from, uh, and basically how you got into betting. Sure thing. So um, my day job is now a data scientist, and I did not come to that originally. In a former life, I was actually an energy efficiency engineer crawling around boiler rooms in the Midwest doing energy efficiency studies with the uh, engineering degree I'd cobbled together. I ended up kind of stumbling into sports betting because like all 20-something men with a mathematical aptitude, I was convinced at a very early age that I could beat the market with my magical formula that I put together. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's never as easy as it sounds when your first couple of go with your first couple of goes at that. Everyone's convinced they have the world's greatest approach and the world they're the world's smartest person. And one of the things that I love about sports betting, it has a very ball don't lie quality to it, where you are never as smart as you think you are. And the market is always happy to teach you that lesson. But the plus side is like once I kind of got into, uh, you know, some different approaches of modeling, you know, kind of learned the ins and outs of prediction the hard way, reading a white paper and seeing if I could recreate it in MATLAB, the only programming language I knew from my energy engineering days. Um, I was able to, you know, develop a ranking algorithm that had some pretty applicable, uh, you know, use cases. Funnily enough, it is actually the exact same ranking algorithm of uh, one Ed Fain from the Power Rank, mm. uh, who, like, I, you know, we we've all talked with that a bunch, but we kind of independently came to the same approach. Uh, I just use it for a bunch of different sports, uh, chiefly tennis and golf. Uh, had kind of a, a, you know, a secondary writing career, uh, writing about tennis analytics for a while at SBNation.com, eventually turned the algorithm to golf, where I parlayed that into uh, running the golf product for fantasylabs.com, and ended up uh, at director of data science at the Action Network once Fantasy Labs was rolled into the Action Network. Ever since then, you know, I've, I've touched pretty much every single sport with every single different approach uh, in all things data science. And uh, if nothing else, like it served, like I think sports has been great, uh, specifically sports betting, kind of as a uh, kind of a, a facilitator for me to become a full-time data scientist because there was no better way to really understand the ins and outs of prediction than wagering live money on it every single week. There is something very a very real feedback mechanism that forces you to get better and examine yourself uh, that just doesn't happen unless you have the right amount of pressure being applied to you. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's actually a really good point. I remember when I first started modeling things out, uh, I I would come up with win probabilities on games. I'd kind of, at the end of the day, do like a recap of whether I would have won or lost. I mean, it's not really that simple because you're betting into a market that's very fluid and a lot of the lines that you think you might have been able to get over the course of the day aren't there. So uh, actually betting the stuff out, I think is... is, um, I mean, I'm not suggesting anyone, everybody goes and puts like their mortgage on, on a model that they built, but the actual process of betting, I think teaches you a lot about where you can improve, where you're going wrong. So I think that's a a really interesting point. I'm also interested, Colin, why you got started in golf and tennis at the beginning. Is that just, are those just sports that you're passionate about? No, it's actually the opposite. Uh, (laughs) I had settled on tennis, never, you know, like really knowing anything about the ins and outs of the pro scene. I kind of settled on it because I thought it was an underserved niche where like no one was doing anything on tennis analytics and all the other major sports are pretty saturated in terms of the ability to uh, generate a voice. I thought no one was doing anything with tennis ranking and analytics in particular. And the ranking algorithm that I had, I thought was pretty well suited to individual sports over team sports. 
not to get too far into the weeds, but you know, the, the ranking algorithm is kind of powered by scoring differential between two groups. Mm-hmm. And when you do that between teams, teams are the, like, it's not just the sum of its parts. They're constantly changing kind of units that like it becomes very, it just becomes very difficult to model under any approach, but definitely one that limits the utility of, uh, you know, a simple like, you know, score differential. So with individual sports, uh, yes, players can change over time, but like, it's not like they are swapping out like entire components of themselves. So the particular ranking approach that I took is just very well suited to individual sports over team sports. Do you mind talking a little bit of, a little bit more about that approach? Obviously, we don't want you to give away the the special sauce or anything like that. But what goes into modeling uh, for you? Obviously, you're you're a coder. You got a data science background. Uh, a lot of different fancy stuff. I'm sure that the average person doesn't understand. Um, but from a ground up perspective, you know what stuff kind of goes into modeling uh, a player performance in an individual sport. Sure. So, like, it actually like the other reason I like this approach is it kind of takes a lesson more approach we could get it into uh you know dis- uh, disparity in data sources granularity but the core of it is just uh score differential who beat who by how much which is a concept that's universal across all sports in the case of tennis you can look at you know basically the game differential you know a 6060 victory is way different than like a 6464 and because it has a higher scoring differential in golf beating someone by eight strokes is to be different than beating someone by two strokes. And so if you take that as kind of your base unit, you can, with some not too complicated math, convert uh, a score differential into a probability that player A is better than player B. Obviously, the more that they beat by them, beat them by, uh, the higher the probability is that they're a better player. Now, the great thing of sports, though, is that, you know, you have all sorts of conflicting results. How many transitive property wins have you seen on any given college football season where I beat that this team beat them and they beat them and they beat them. Right. So they're national champions now, yeah. right? <laughs> That's the beauty of sports. And there are some approaches that are basically able to sift through all of those like potentially conflicting probabilities where they're better than them, but they're better than them, they're better than them. You can collide those together uh, and kind of get a steady state sorting of like, you know, colliding of those all together and getting kind of a rank order. Uh, if you're curious, like the specific approach is called a Markov chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I don't want to get into these there, but you know, I don't think there's any particular special sauce to it. I originally started this thing reading a white paper by some Georgia tech professors who did this for NCAA basketball. So I don't consider it kind of like the base ranking approach, all that proprietary or special sauce or anything like that. It's really what you do outside of the base rank and learning to adjust for kind of sports specific stuff that I think is very interesting. Is there a subjective layer at all that you use? We've talked to a lot of different originators on Circles Off and and just friends of ours just in general. There are some that are purely math-based. There are some that will run their numbers and then subjectively make plays based off of what they think is right and wrong or dig into some things that might look wrong. There are some that will just um, find a way to create numbers just by using subjective opinions on teams and, and the eye test. Uh, where do you fit into that? Like w- when you have an output of your model, are you blindly betting that or backing anything that it spits out? Or are you willing to say, hmm, this doesn't look right to me. Maybe I'm going to avoid this player or this team. Um, what like what goes into that, Colin? I consider my approach 90% mathematical and maybe 10% subjective. 
Um, I am the first one to say that I know my strong suit is the math part, and I am not particularly good at the subjective part. Uh, one of the rewarding parts of doing the golf product on Fantasy Labs was spending so much time talking with Peter Jennings, who you know does this for DFS, and he is just one of those people that can synthesize it and has a talent for that. That I am the first one to say I do not have. So, you know, there's another lesson here in sports betting, which is know your lane. We'd all like to be good at everything, obviously, but um, at some point you have to recognize like what you're bad at and don't try to pretend that you can. Like I, I won't claim to know that watching, you know, 30 minutes of televised golf or whatever featured holes they have gives me some insight into, you know, how to object, like uh, adjust the numbers across the board. It's more low stakes stuff. Like if there's a huge disparity between, you know, my heads up prediction and the market, it's doing some, was this player injured recently? Mm -hmm. Are there any obvious reasons why I may be bullish or bearish on a player that is not captured strictly, strictly in the data? And so it's more to avoid outlier bets. And so if there's an outlier result in the model compared to the markets, if there's a plausible reason for it, it is it ends up me just saying, there's stuff that is not priced into this model probably i should not touch this bet even though the model says it uh you know it's a bet that's very interesting and i um i mean it speaks to me quite a bit and and um what i do in general i can just speak from personal experience this year struggling to get to arizona cardinals numbers on market and part of it was well kyler murray played about a month injured last year and i'm using that data in my priors for the Arizona Cardinals, whereas I could totally see how someone would not be using that data because it's not reflective of his true performance. So being able to dig into that stuff and make like an adjustment or say, you know what, either I'm going to remove this data completely or I'm just going to avoid these games until I I, I catch up to market. I think there's something there. Um, Colin, you, you mentioned DFS, which um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about, obviously, because of your experience with Fantasy Labs. I know that you uh, have a level experience in, of experience in both sports betting and DFS. Just curious um, where you think that the bigger edge lies nowadays, because I, I personally played DFS for a living for a while before transitioning into sports betting. My edge in sports betting slowly been going down. I've always wondered, do are there edges that still exist in DFS or has as I guess the market caught up because there's just too much good content out there nowadays. I think DFS, like, I mean, there in some parts of the game, the edge will never go away. It also depends on what type of contest you're playing. I think for the cash games, you know, which are more 50, 50, you have to be, you know, only like 43% of the field to double mm -hmm. up. I, I, I think that edge will go away for everyone over time because there is too much good content and there are too many better projections and we're going to get to a stable equilibrium where it's just tougher to grind out those, uh, like, you know, information that other players don't have, like, day over day. I think if there's ever going to be a sustainable edge in DFS, it's going to be in GPPs, which necessitate the use of game theory. Right. Where, like, I mean, people like Bales and Jennings have written about this better than I can, where um, I think the flaw that people still cling to in DFS is overweighting their own belief on what's going to happen when, but when you're trying to be the best out of a hundred thousand, you know, which is where all the positive expectation lies, like just like a very, in a very top heavy payout, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what everyone else believes. 
And so like the ability to, I mean, I know contrarian gets thrown around a lot and the arguably the worst ways now, I think it's almost like it's like, it's mutated in that form where it's just being different for the sake of being different. Um, but I think if there's ever going to be a sustainable edge, it's going to be an execution of game theory and really pricing in, uh, you know, the, the trade-off between projected performance and upside versus ownership. That being said, the reason why, I, I, to answer your original question, I think sports betting offers a better opportunity now, in my opinion, these days in DFS, because one, you have all these new operators flooding in markets that just do not know what they're doing. And they're going to offer a lot of products to try to get people in. I think there's money to be made exploiting flaws in those products. And two, even if there's an edge left in DFS, it's such a high variance edge. Think of Mm -hmm. golf alone, where you could be executing game theory, optimal lineups and plays, and you may not realize a profit for two years because like you, you have to play for the top of the prize pool. You can understand that mathematically and say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just long-term, but try losing for 18 months straight, not knowing whether or not you're actually doing the right thing. Even the most experienced sports bettors will have difficulty stomach, stomaching that losing just week over week over week and convincing yourself, uh, this is just variance. I'm doing the right thing. That's absolutely a great point. I have a personal friend that uh, runs a uh, provincial lottery uh, type of operation in Canada, which prior to single game uh, wagering being legalized a couple months ago, uh, you had to parlay games. Um, So I have a a friend essentially who's parlaying six and seven games a night over and over and over and will literally lose every single night for two or three months, have no idea if they have an edge and then eventually hit big. Um, but the struggle is real. No, no matter how good of a better you are and how confident you are in your edge, when you consistently lose over and over, it's just natural to start questioning yourself. So I actually think that's a really good point that I, I didn't think about um, in general, but it's, um, you, you, could, you could have a very large edge in DFS tournament play, um, but not even know it and maybe, maybe quit it before you even realize uh, that edge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. It's um, tough because, sorry, Rob, it's tough because at the same time, when you're working on such a thin margin, uh, it's a lo- what a lot of people talk about, like straight wagers in sports as well. You know, you're like, oh, I'm going to earn a percent on these. You know, if you have a 1% edge, in theory, if you go on a bad run of variance, like you could lose, you know what I mean? It's within the realm of possibilities for you to, for you to lose for three months straight, betting every single day, betting five plays at a 1% edge. And the reality is like most people don't um, factor that in to the outcome of like with, with what's within the realm of possibilities and they get burned that way. But yeah, variance is real. You have to look at what edge you're working with and then what amount of sample size you would need to actually realize that at a reasonable amount. So what Colin's saying with the DFS stuff is huge, right? If you have a small edge in DFS, because the payouts are so large in a lot of these contests, you know, you're risking a hundred bucks and you're going to lose that hundred dollars a thousand times over before you win a million dollars. And the reality is most people won't be able to stomach that. So it's careful um, when you're looking at stuff like that, big cash games, it's like these pools as well. Rob and I released the episode last week, how to win your pools. Even if you have a huge edge on your pool for NFL survivor, you're still going to lose that pool probably nine and 10 years, right? But the one year you win, 
it's going to be higher than a 10 to one payout. So anyways, crazy stuff. Variance is real. We always say it in sports betting, but not a lot of people understand exactly what goes into that saying. Um, Colin, we also wanted to ask you more specifically about uh, golf betting. Cause when I, when I met you at the Sloan uh, sports analytics conference, we talked a lot about you building out models for golf projections. We've had a Rufus on this podcast and Rufus's head trader, AKA his brother, who is also helping him with a lot of the golf betting and golf, golf modeling stuff. So Colin, what's your edge in golf? Are you still doing uh, a lot of golf betting? If not, um, kind of where is that shifted to what's going on on the golf front? I'm actually doing a lot less golf betting and a lot more tool building these days. Apparently, Rufus and I both had the same idea, although I'm sure his golf operation is much more automated and streamlined at this point. Um, but yeah, like in my golf, in my heavier golf betting days, it would mostly be firing on opening head to head matchups. Uh, I, you know, for the same reason I, that we talked about. You know, there are markets for top five and top tens, and like those tend to have a lot more juice in them than anything. Uh, and just the head to head matchups have like a lot less higher variance than, uh, you know, winning outrights and kind of some of the heavier payout things. Um, I think it's also like just from having run it a bunch, I think there's something very real on um, golf upside and the ability to kind of climb into the top of a leaderboard versus playing generally good golf. I think, you know, like making the cut versus getting top 25 versus top five versus winning outright. Those are all at this point, I believe, separable skills. And I think the higher you get up the leaderboard, it necessitates kind of some more of that subjective based understanding on, you know, because how many people have their favorites on this golfer is really good. Why can't they get to the top of the leaderboard? I'm sure we're all thinking of Tony Finau right now because I've spent, you know, years thinking about why can't Tony Finau win an outright when you know I, I had him in a lot of lineups. Um, but for the most part, you know, I was betting uh, head to head uh, and a lot more kind of DFS more than anything. But um, a lot more of my energy these days uh, is kind of shifting away from golf and uh, some uh, more tool-based projects that uh, we're looking to start circulating in a little bit. We'll Let's hear about them. We'll definitely ask you about that, Colin. I, I I will get to it in one second. I just want to pick your brain on one golf-related item just because it always comes up in general. And over the last couple of years, there's obviously been, uh, I think when COVID happened, PGA was still happening. It was like the only golf go like only North American major sport going on. So a ton of people just jumped into the space, started betting golf, doing golf DFS. And really what came to the forefront was the strokes gained data. Uh, and everybody just focusing in and honing in on strokes gained data. Everyone was producing golf models. Uh, and there's people on the front of strokes gained are extremely valuable and what you should be looking at. And then there's people on the other end, like Rufus, for example, who we've had a private conversations with that say strokes gain data, really not all that valuable. Uh, I know that for a long time you were producing golf content. Just curious on your take on strokes gained. So the very first article I ever wrote for Fantasy Labs was called Strokes Gained is Overrated in DFS. <laughs> and who boy, did I get some opinions on the internet that day. Um, I, as you might guess, I am firmly on Rufus' side where uh, it is very overrated. And I think the pieces are probably still up there on Fantasy Lab. So my thesis for why it was overrated from a predictive standpoint uh, are kind of a three-parter. One, like the information is just 
and top score line uh, is not just the information game, you know, what you can reliably predict and kind of deconstruct from traditional stats, uh, you know, driving distance, driving accuracy, uh, green to reg, all those things combined with this kind of like top level, like score results, you can recreate strokes gain with a pretty decent R squared or correlation. Uh, You know, you can capture like 80% of like the information, like with just traditional stats. Part two is the 20% that you can't capture. doesn't add a whole lot of lift to Mm -hmm. anytime you kind of throw it into models uh, when you try to predict it. And number three, and this is the part that no one really covers all that well, is there are tournaments for which there is not shot link data. Right. Uh, some of the, there are a couple of PGA yeah. tour events, the Euro tour forever did not have any, uh, even on the corn Ferry tour, uh, there, you know, their shot link isn't there. And if you're using stroke, strokes gain as your primary data source, you are, you have holes in your data from entire tournaments and you don't know it. And so if I had the choice between, you know, course data that covers everything versus granular data that has holes in it. I'm going to cover the thing that has everything in it because yep. you can't afford to outright just not count results when you're combining data and evaluating player performance. Great answer. I, I, I was one that was heavily reliant on strokes game da- data for a while. And then after picking the brains of some people that were smarter and more successful in golf, kind of reached the same conclusion as you. But I, I did want to talk about it in there because it is something that uh, comes up pretty regularly with questions that people ask me in general. But Colin, we will shift to, uh, you talked about building out tools. So let's talk about Betscope a bit. Uh, I've had a chance to play around with the beta that you sent me months ago, just in general. I know today you actually started tweeting about it and um, I believe the product is live in some capacity right now. But uh, let, let's talk about Betscope and specifically what it is um, and how people can check it out. Sure. So one minor correction up at the stop. The product is not actually live. We do have a couple more months to go before people can actually play around with it. Uh, but Rob, I did get a chance to show it to you or a demo version earlier. And uh, it's intended to be a betting tool that kind of gives people uh, the best return on their investment for a, their, a, a given belief they have about um, you know, betting on a game. And that sounds very abstract. Uh, and, you know, I'm hoping to start this newsletter, which, you know, everyone can go to betscoper.com and sign up for the newsletter as we kind of talk about some of these problems that we're looking to address with the product. Um, but I think there, there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of mistakes I'm sure that you guys see amateur sports bettors make. Uh, and the one that I think is most glaring is, con- is not looking for the best price possible uh, for any given bet. Like, I don't think we're even at the stage where line shopping for the best uh, price for the bet you want to know and the thing you're convinced you can bet on is, is accepted among other people, much less looking for correlated outcomes that maybe even have a more favorable price. Right. Uh, part of this is conceptual because it's tough to wrap your brain around, you know, like, oh, well, I like the bucks, so I'm just going to bet the bucks uh, versus like, why would you not want to look for Like, if you like the bucks, why would you not want to bet Tom Brady's over on the passing yards, right? You're not thinking about that because like, you know, it's, it's what your buddy told you to bet. Like you're not analyzing it. A lot of it is also due to the uh, inadequacy of the products out there. I don't think there are a lot of products that kind of are able to synthesize all available markets on a game 
and display them and crunch the data accordingly to kind of give a comprehensive view of here's the totality of things you can bet on for a single game, much less highlight markets that have, you know, either lower fig or mispriced, uh, you know, prices or stale lines or anything like that. Uh, and also there's no product out there that kind of allows you to understand the full range of your beliefs. Like if like take, for example, if you like the bucks minus three, cause you think it should be bucks minus seven or something like that. By definition, you also probably believe that a lot of other markets or a lot of other, you know, projected market outcomes are different, but without kind of some mathematical backing, it's tough to understand what those correlated beliefs of yours might be. Uh, and so we're looking to kind of build out some tools that help players not only realize their full range of beliefs, but exclusively find out, like once they know their full range of the beliefs, the best return on investment markets to attack the sports betting market in general. Got it. So if I'm so if I'm a recreational better and I say like, all right, I want to try, I want to bet. You know, I've got one sports betting account, um, and you know, let's say I've got a bet three sixty five account, and I want to place a bet. If I come to your your product, um, kind of walk me through how that works. Like how how do I now improve by um, using? And I guess I know you said it's a couple months away, but how would I go then and improve my betting? So normally, if you go to a bet three sixty five account. Those are the bet 365 prices for all the markets that you want for a given game, right? I think one of the strategies that professional sports bettors use is they don't just have a bet 365 account. They have an account everywhere because they are ruthlessly and unceasingly looking to get the best price possible across the entire market. So you get, when, you, when you go to our product, um, it's not just gonna be bet 365, it's gonna be prices for everyone. And there are places out there that, you know, kind of give you comparative odds. Like, you know, sometimes you can line shop for maybe like the spread or the total or the money line for a given game. Uh, it's very difficult to condense prop markets and halves and quarters and all of that. Like if you just did that for an entire game and showed it for everyone, there are places like my former employer, the Action Network, that try to do this with a prop with a props tool they have. I don't think the information is presented in a way that's necessarily digestible or kind of gives you a very like quick and easy view of like, what is the market's view for literally everything that could happen at this game? So first thing is it's a better comprehensive source of information on like, what does the market in general think about all of these games? Uh, and then second, like we'll do the hard work of highlighting which markets have, you know, price discrepancies across different books. So that like we give you like best angles of attack across multiple books. Like if you wanted to bet, you know, a player prop at bet 365, we'll do the hard work of highlighting where else you should bet it. Uh, and in addition, like if you have a thesis, you know, hypothesis, an angle that you want to check where I think this line should be this, we will do the correlations for you where you say, I think this line should be different. You punch in what you think your single different line is and click calculate, and we will recalculate all of the lines to figure out what you, you know, what your updated beliefs will be for all of the lines. And in addition to which, we'll just highlight, all right, like here's your beliefs, here's your beliefs collided against the entirety of all, all books that we support coverage on, and here are your best return on investment bets uh, across all the different markets. I found that to be extremely unique. I actually don't know of another product that does it. So I think you're one of a kind in the sense that when I was playing around with it, I thought that was really cool. Being able to adjust the spread in a total in a game, re-simulate the game essentially with the updated uh, statistics for every single player and then getting an output of these are the best lines available and where you can bet 
bet this specific player prop over under whatever it might be. So uh, I actually think that's a really cool idea. I'm, I'm interested in where you actually, where this idea came from, Colin. Well, I would be remiss. I owe a huge debt of gratitude uh, to Ed Miller for writing The Logic of Sports Betting. Uh, I don't know to what degree that book has been discussed on this podcast. Every episode. I, I, seriously, every guest brings up that book in some capacity, whether we're actually in the episode or post-episode when we're talking about it, but it's extremely popular. Wait, by the way, but so for the listeners, I got to step in here because we, we've brought up the book multiple times. We never really gave a quick synopsis. Like I think you know, if I were to just give like a couple lines on what the book is, it's just explaining to you that um, you, know, you need to find as close to a zero synthetic hold as possible. And what a zero synthetic hold is, is by using one sports book, you're betting into one hold. And by using multiple sports books, you can generate a hold percentage or a, a VIG or a commission percentage that's so low because you're combining all the books that no one book would ever offer a commission that low because they would be out of business. And if they'd be out of business by offering a commission that low, that means that's probably something you could capitalize on. So that's the concept of the, of the book. And now we'll let uh, Colin uh, take it over. But yeah, we brought it up so many times, we never really give a synopsis. So now everyone who doesn't know what it is knows. Yeah, I think it, I mean, Ed basically very smartly articulated, you know, a vision of how to like, it's just so much easier to become, to be a profitable sports better when you're paying as little VIG as possible. Um, I think, you know, one of the big traps that everyone falls into and the sports, you know, the, you know, the sports betting industry does really well is it's designed to convince people of their own cleverness of the, you know, the specific, you know, against the spread trend or this angle that you want to look at at bets. And like, they're really selling this vision of like, oh yeah, like you can totally have smart. Like, God, having been through so many iterations of, you know, model-based betting, like it is hard to just straight up bet into a full hold market and actually beat it reliably over the long term. It is so much harder than everyone realizes like to win 52.3% of your bets long term. I'd rather have be in situations where I bet into 50, like where I have to only have to be right 50.00001% of the time right. to be a winning sports better because the bigger the hold that you're betting into, the better you have to be at sports betting. And it's really tough to be at sports betting. So I think like instead of focusing on how clever you think you are, because you do this a long enough time, the market will show you that you're never as smart and clever as you think you are. I think everyone will be better served by just assuming that they're dumb and asking what is the best way I could win as a sports better if I were dumb. And the best way is to just only look for markets that basically don't have any hold because if I'm dumb, I don't, I have to be right less often. We're going to have to cut this clip because it's a perfect promotion for our product as well. Betstamp, which is is the exact same thing, but I tell people this all the time and, and this is friends that are close to me and you don't even have to be a winning better. If you can, if you can get yourself to a point where you're paying like one cent VIG on something, you can be a true coin flipper over time you're expected to have a very minimal loss, like pretty much break even better at that point. You don't need to know anything about sports. Uh, and so many people are just committed to the one sports book approach. And I get it. Obviously, there's there's some people that don't have the disposable income to put money in, in a dozen different books. And and I, I get that. I understand it. But even three, four, five different books gives yourself such a, a better chance in the long run to profit just based off of finding the best price available. So 
I think we definitely see eye to eye on that. Um, Colin, just in general, I- I'm noticing a-, a shift in. So, I mean, you're obviously a part of Fantasy Labs, which is a, a-, a DFS tool. Uh, but we, you know, have no- there's a noticeable shift in recent years from just picks content. I think more towards betting tools, and that includes Unabated, which you know Rufus was on here before. That includes BetStamp, which we've built out. Do you think that there's a big enough market for betting tools going forwards? The only reason I ask is it seems like the market lacks education right now in general. And there's still a very large amount of people who who don't really care to do things themselves. It's like, feed me the pick. I'll read this quick article. I'll watch this quick video. Do you think that this is sustainable long term in that people will actually care to go through this process themselves? I think there is a market. And so like, is the market big enough to, you know, like put in a whole bunch of like VC backed money that demands like a 20 X exit because like the total addressable market is huge. Not necessarily, but I don't think it's a coincidence that like, you know, of the companies that we mentioned here, you know, Betstamp unabated, which like the first time that I originated this, I sent Dan Fabrizio an email saying like, Hey, I think I'm going to be building something similar. So like I am friends with like all the unabated guys and like, we're both rooting for each other. I think it's not a coincidence that all of these projects are coming from people who build it, you know, for love of the game, so to speak, and are not looking to build something to sell to sports books. So I don't think any of us are particularly like, you know, none of us have dreams of making this a get rich quick scheme. This is something that we've all like, we're building stuff that we would use ourselves. And I'm sure there is a market, you know, beyond just, you know, big buying picks and like whatever the latest like sports betting influences and Instagram, just like, tell me what to bet. I don't really care. That market will always be there. Who knows how sustainable that market is, but like, since we're still so early in the days of legalization, there are people who are conditioned on, you know, like, I mean, maybe Robinhood's a bad example because the whole point of Robinhood is, you know, get a 20x return overnight because you bought Shiba Inu at the right time or whatever. But, like, <laughs> but I think, but on the flip side of that, I think there are like people more interested in doing their own process and getting their own research. Like you peek under the hood of Wall Street bets, you know, memes aside, there are people like trying to grind this out themselves and kind of having original theses on how to like, you know, apply their reasoning to make money. I think sports betting is no different. And frankly, I think it's a better opportunity because like there are just very clear opportunities with all these new operations in the space. So I think there is a market for it. I think we're all figuring out together how big that market is. But I think we would progress the same if the market was 500 people or 500,000 people. I like what you said about building stuff that you would use yourself. Um, I say like to anyone who's listening, the biggest differentiator between what BetStamp would be doing in terms of the odds comparison. And obviously, you know, we do focus a lot on the bet verification and things like that as well. But outside of the odds comparison that we offer, one thing that Colin's doing that's a little bit more unique is actually... um, in some capacity, giving out the pick. So you you saying like, hey, I think this is a good bet. And then him relaying that and transferring it and saying, bet these five things then. So it makes it a lot of, um, you know, a lot easier in terms of what to bet. And when he's giving out this data and this info, it's not from the stance of like, oh, I want to sell picks. And like, I think these are going to win. It's more from the stance of you think, like you might think that this is a good bet and he's going to now tell you, his product's now going to tell you. If you think that it's a good bet, 
try doing A, B, C, and D. And in all scenarios, if the data is correct, um, then A, B, C, and D are going to be either equal or better expected value to your bet. So having something like that super valuable and potentially something that, you know, we could partner with Colin and bringing stuff like this into BetSamp as well, where it's not just about line shopping. Sometimes it's about having fun and it's about, I want to bet on this. And like Colin's saying, if you just have one sports book, you just want to bet on the Buccaneers and you just bet the Bucks at minus 110, you're giving up so much value than putting that into a tool like Collins and then saying, okay, I got Brady passing yards. I got X, I got Z, I got B. And then now having more fun as well as having a better edge on your return. So I appreciate the product and also love the fact that you said that it's something you would use yourself because as Rob has mentioned multiple times and I have as well, BetStamp is also something we use ourselves on a day-to-day basis to track, to analyze, and to line shop. So um, if we continue to get products like this into the market, like Unabated, um, you know, like BetStamp, like all of the new ones that are coming in that are actually geared, like built by sports bettors who kind of know what they're doing in a sense and know how to calculate expected value. If we continue to get products like this in the market, I think total market grows. So like Colin was saying, you know, to have a small total addressable market, fine. But, you know, in the long run, as betting starts to get way more popular than it is right now, having products like this is huge for the industry. So we thank you there. And we, you know, glad to be on the same team in terms of what we're both trying to achieve. I do. Yeah. yeah, All of us have a pretty good, like unified vision of what we'd like the industry and the market to be. Uh, Cause like there is like, I mean, I, as I mentioned at the start, like I feel like I am a decent living, breathing example of what happens if you can get interested in sports betting. Even if you never become the kajillionaire that you thought you were, like just up-leveling your reasoning, your like technical abilities, your thought processes, it just pays off in so many other areas of life that that's where this gets to be beyond just, you know, a hobby or a fun distraction. It becomes, you know, a, a transformative tool that or like a, tra- a, a, a skill set that like, I, I really believe, and this is not like a snake oil pitch that like, it can just help you in so many other areas of your life. I have to ask a very difficult question because I'd be remiss if I don't do so. And the general critique of anyone selling anything in this space, whether that's picks, tools, whatever it is, is if you are selling a product or affiliating to sports books or however you're monetizing, doesn't matter. The, the criticism is always, if this stuff was so good, why would you need it to sell it to me? And that's generally the statement that gets made about all of these products in general. And I'm just interested in what your response would be to that question, Colin. Um, first, I, it's an absolute legitimate criticism. And like anyone selling anything in this space should be taken with a huge grain of salt. So like I firmly agree with him. Um, I think the reason why like, things like this are allowed to exist, like first and foremost, uh, is like there, I think sports books still do have some interest in, you know, betting tools or products. Um, the classic example is in the European markets, you know, you have how many, uh, arbitrage services do you have available where it's like looking at both sides and highlighting arbs, um, BetScope will kind of do that as a byproduct, like arbitrage is one condition of a market that we will highlight, but there are plenty of other ones that are not just strictly arbitrage based. But, you know, the bookmakers do have a vested interest in promoting those ARB sites because it's a way for people who would uh, otherwise have a single sports betting account to have multiple accounts. So it does help that with their signups. And the reality is that um, 
when you attract, let's say like we both attract like a thousand new users. And I think we all have the best of intentions to make our tools very player focused and never anything that would steer them away from the right, from the wrong direction. There are 10%, you know, just a number out of like thin air that will misuse them and will probably, you know, become losing players in the long run. And maybe 10, like 10% of those 10% will lose huge amounts. Those are the whales that the sports books are looking for. And so I think their business model is like, yeah, like let's promote like the, you know, the tools that can kind of uh, exist and kind of help some players. But it's like the one we catch is like, we'll outpay, like we'll pay for the rest and then some. You and I can't control that. I've kind of accepted it. And like, there's no content or tools or improvements that we're producing that will ever try to like steer it towards that outcome. Um, especially, like, I mean, maybe it's different if any of us took rev share from our affiliate revenue from the books. Uh, I certainly don't plan on going down that road because there's no, I don't think there's any universe in which rev share uh, and building a product that is good for players can coexist. Um, but I think there are structural reasons why these types of tools can be encouraged because at the end of the day, it is a marketing tool and they are bringing in new players to new sports books. Yeah, I think that on our end, uh, obviously we we strongly believe in what we've built and the idea that if if people use it in the correct capacity, that not necessarily is going to bet stamp going to make you a winning better, but if you're a losing better, you will probably lose less or maybe potentially become a winning better. That's always what we've we've stood by. But I think I, I there's like an onus on our end to preach responsible gaming just in general. Like obviously we're we're creating an app that will encourage more betting. People will see better lines available to them. And just by virtue of opening it on a daily basis, they're more likely to place a bet. I think that's where we shift into like some sort of educational content on, and we've always preached it on this podcast in general, never bet with money that you don't have and uh, bet within your limits. And we really try to reinforce that. Is it going to work for a hundred percent of people? No, sadly it won't. It doesn't matter how many times I say it over and over and over. There's some people that there's just an addictive quality to betting as there is to cigarettes and anything else that where there's warnings on the labels and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's fair, but I, I think it is on, it is uh, part of our um, responsibility to, to make sure that as an industry, we're, we're promoting uh, responsible gaming. Absolutely. And uh, that even to get into product design, I'm sure like there, there's, we all want to make engaging products. And I'm sure there's plenty of just dark arts that are known at this point about how to maximize the addictive properties of like whatever application you're doing. I feel like if anyone's figured that out to a fault as someone like Robin Hood, who like, I don't know that there's anyone who believes that there are, they're promoting fiscal responsibility and anything, any of the things that they're pushing and no one's doing anything wrong when they want to make a, uh, you know, a, a good user experience or something that increases their engagement. But Rob, I do agree that there is kind of a, a responsibility, especially when you're dealing in a field like gambling. I, I think there's a difference between, you know, maximum your time spent on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for those things versus maximizing the time spent on sports betting. Like the, it just has a fundamentally higher cost when it goes wrong. Right. Uh, I think we've all made our peace with that about like you take the good with the bad and we do have an obligation to minimize the bad uh, in, a, in whatever form that that takes. So I completely agree. Uh, for those listening, you can follow Colin on, uh, on Twitter at it's adjusted baseline, but you've abbreviated adjusted. A D J baseline. 
Uh, and any updates for Betscope, I'm sure Colin will post to his Twitter going forwards, but check it out. Betscoper.com is the website. Um, He's got to get a new URL. I you, yeah, this. we've we've talked to you it's, off it's air. Bet, but we- Betscope, but then his URL is Betscoper. So for, for now, that's what it is. And I'm sure he'll keep that, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to change in the future. It's got to. Yeah, sounds good. What well, next time I come back, we're just, we're just going to talk about Jeopardy the whole time, right? Well, we're still going to talk about Jeopardy right now. We have to talk about Jeopardy right well, now. I mean, yeah, I know we're kind of at time, but I know we have some fans in the house, so I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention that. Yeah, I answer a couple questions. Well, okay, me, we me and Johnny it. are Jeopardy fans in general, so like um, Johnny told the story off air before we, which is yeah, the first time it. I've heard it. So go ahead. Yeah, I uh, I watched Jeopardy. Uh, well. I like my parents watched Jeopardy and, um, you know, growing up, we watched it a lot. Um, and so I was over at my parents and, uh, Jeopardy was on, we were, we, we play the game as a family. We kind of like, you know, um, it'll be on volume and then we'll just try to get the answers before the contestants and stuff like that. And usually if you watch enough Jeopardy, it's not, it's not too difficult because they use a lot of the same answers over and over and you have to look for trigger words and kind of the way the question is framed, uh, gives away what the answer is, even if you don't know it. But, one day I'm at my parents' house and uh, Jeopardy's on and my mom's watching and I'm like, I look at the screen. I'm like, I know that guy. I'm like, that's Colin. I, I know that guy. My mom's like, you don't know that guy. There, He was like some golf guy. I was like, no, we, I know him. Like he was like a golf better. Like I've met him and she's like, no way. And then sure enough, this guy pulls off an insanely lucky double, then wins it in the final Jeopardy. Uh, you know, one day champ. Colin, very impressive, you know, how he even got on there. But yeah, if you want to tell the story, like what went through and I, I and for anyone that didn't read his article, uh, we'll have to put that under the, the tweet link when we tweet this out. But uh, Colin had an article on how he used data science to win at Jeopardy, which was very, very interesting as well. So we got to let you tell the story, but came out of the blue one day and I'm like, I know that guy I was rooting for you hard and you pulled it off. So congrats, my man. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a, a long time bucket list item to want to go on the show. I'd always been a trivia person prior to that. Uh, not not more of a trivia person than a Jeopardy fan, to be honest. But if you're a trivia person, there's no higher competition than Jeopardy itself. So um, I, I did the online tryout in January of 2020. The world shut down and I completely forgot about it. So when I got an email out of the blue saying we're still doing auditions and doing Zoom, uh, you know, proceeded through uh, the audition process there. And, and that was, and for those not in the know, um, the way that the process works is if you get a high enough score on the online test that they do every year, you're put into a lottery where every qualifying score of like 70% or above gets into a lottery and that's like a 10% chance to clear. And so once I knew that I had cleared the lottery process, I made up my mission at that point to understand everything that's in my control in the audition process uh, to maximize my chance of getting on the show. That's everything from doing a little bit of studying, making sure you're presentable on the auditions and just kind of making sure you're good TV uh, material. So once I got selected, Oh man, the, the freak out was very real because most people get four weeks to prepare and I had two. And so I'm like, all right, I thought I'd have more time to study. Um, I need to figure out a way to maximize my time efficiency to prep for this show. So I was on a plane ride from Philadelphia back to San Francisco. I had previously scraped the entirety of the online site, uh, jarchive.com, that a lot of contestants used to prepare. And just they kind of, you know, every single question dating back forever. And I knew there were categories that I needed to brush up on. Everyone has strong and weak points in the trivia. 
And after just kind of reading through every single one of these questions, I'm like, there has to be a faster way to kind of digest these keywords that you're looking for. Because uh, Johnny, to your point, um, one of the lesser known things about Jeopardy is that they reuse certain keywords for certain clues deliberately over and over again. The longtime viewers of them call, uh, call them Pavlov clues, where if you hear a phrase like Iowa painter, you always know it's Grant Wood. If you hear Tahitian women and a painter, the answers always go Gant. They do that on purpose. And so I kind of, it kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning in middle plane ride. Like this is a natural language processing question. Can I get for every single answers? Like, can I strip out the fluff words and basically extract the most commonly occurring types of words for all of these answers? And there are some natural language processes, uh, processing algorithms that not only do this really well, but they can dump it into a word cloud. So basically I created my own flashcards. And so like I was able to reduce my studying from instead of reading the Wikipedia article for every single common answer to narrowing it down to just remember five words. And so like going from 3,000 words to remember to five is a huge efficiency boost. And it ended up playing out and providing the winning margin for my episode. So take us through, was it, was it cool? And I mean, honestly, it's awesome that you got to, you know, get on one of the, the later Trebek episodes. So like one of the last ones that, that had aired, but, uh, was it a surreal experience? How was it actually going on the show? Like, was it, was it cool? Was one, actually one question for you. A lot of people, you'll see them, they'll like, they'll know the answer and, you know, they're trying to get the clicker in. And then there's always a thing where you've heard like James Holtzauer talk about it and Ken Jennings, like widely regarded as the two best Jeopardy players, talk about how like the answer is kind of secondary to knowing like when to click the buzzer. So did you study up on that at all? Because that's another, you know, on, it's a hidden edge to the game. You can know all the answers, but if you can't buzz in fast enough, you're not going to win. So how, how was that? Like, is it as hard as it, as it seems? I don't know if it's a hidden edge anymore, but it's definitely the first thing that I focused on. So Ken and uh, James, who Rufus actually put me in touch with briefly. So one of the other cool <laughs> parts, I did get to pick James Holzhauer's brain and like got his prep guide. So like that was just kind of a fun parenthetical experience for the whole thing. They both recommended to read this book uh, called Secrets of the Buzzer by uh, Fritz Holznagel, uh, a decade, uh, one of the longtime 90s, like really good Jeopardy players. And he wrote the comprehensive book to nailing down your buzzer timing, everything from the power stance you should hold, uh, like what practice you should employ beforehand. I actually emailed him with a couple questions and he was very generous with his time and nice to respond. He's like, when's your episode? I do this, this, and that. Gave me a practice buzzer that he recommended I think I should buy. And I trained on that for basically an hour or two every day until my episode. Um, you are correct in that most people up there when they're there, everyone usually knows the answer and it is a question of getting the buzzer timing exactly right. So it is something that you can train on a short time frame. And if you're ever about to be on the show is the most valuable use of your time if you only had to do one thing because the odds of like whatever thing you stu whatever you studied coming up on the show, they're infinitesimally low because they can ask you about anything. But the odds that you will need to utilize your buzzer skills that you've been practicing are a hundred percent because it's going to be basically on every single question that you get. So we, we introduced you as a Jeopardy champion. You're a one-time champ, which means you won day one, which is impressive. And most people in their life will never get on the show, let alone win 
an episode. So super impressive. But we got to ask you, what are the regrets from day two? You know, one one wrong move, one right move. Maybe you're you, you're the next Holtzauer. What did you think? What uh, what could you? Well, have done I second guess that every day. Uh, well, and <laughs> first first and foremost, I would be remiss. I mean, the so the guy I lost to Brian uh, Brian Adams. You know, like this. He was one of the most pleasant people I have ever encountered. And so like everyone loses on the show eventually, but I could not have lost to a more heartwarming, a nicer man who also won two games after that. So like I lost to a legitimate opponent, like he was great. Um, and so like credit where credit is due. Um, of course, there's all, it, it, it's interesting. Like even in the second game, I could feel like there was just a little bit of edge that I was missing in terms of intensity or focus or preparation. And I think like, if there's one thing I can trace it back to, it's like, there's a very real human element of it. Um, when you're in the waiting room or the green room, that was actually the low key, one of the funnest parts because you're truly among a group of the other weirdos who have all been on this path and you're all on that wavelength. And it is just great talking to your peers on that front. And like, it's a very like short-lived and very real community. The alumni network is also very real. We all have fun talking about our stories, but everyone who gets on that show is definitely the smartest trivia person in like that everyone knows, maybe just like the smartest person in general, like, and everyone knows, everyone wants to win there's not so much it's not so much that you want to win as you want to not lose because there's a natural feeling of i don't i'm on tv for the first time ever i don't want to disappoint people i don't want to let anyone down the pressure you face is very real and so like once you're over that hurdle like the the tortured analogy is why it's harder to win the second championship than the first because you do lose, I maintain, or at least I, I will speak for myself. I feel like I lost a little bit of that urgency and they're like, all right, it's over the hump, you're done. Like, it's just a little bit less urgent than it was before. And I could feel it affecting my performance. So like, honestly, I understand someone like James Holzhauer, even less having been through the process, because I know the, the platonic ideal I'm, it's applicable to sports as well. Don't care about results, focus, or don't care about outcome, focus on process. And like, that's just so hard to do in reality. Great story. I have, so we are obviously a sports betting podcast. So I have to ask you a couple odds related questions here. So if you get back on Jeopardy, let's say you're on Jeopardy tomorrow morning, you're, you have to go on the show. So you have no training at this point. You're just, you, you are, but you have the experience. You're on versus two new contestants, right? So three, three contestants, fair odds would be plus 200 a piece um, for the three of you. What would you say your odds would be? Uh, like, what would you bet yourself at to win that tournament? I don't know that day. I could put myself other than like a, an, an even equity, like one in three favorite. Um, if I'm on tomorrow, I know that my buzzer speed is not up to what it was. So like, I've definitely lost that component. And in terms of like general knowledge, like wise and trivia, I consider myself a very average, like at that level, just like knowledgeable person. There are people who are more knowledgeable than me, but like if we, if it was infinite time, they would wipe the floor with me. So like, I think my edge that I would um, maintain though, and this is why maybe I just basically call it a wash, is the willingness to make big bets accordingly. Um, Johnny, as you saw, I'm sure like the, you know, I going into double jeopardy i was behind to a player that i did not want to face like you know like basically from talking with her in the green room i thought she'd be a very tough opponent and she was ahead of me and i knew that like my best chance of winning and i knew i'd go daily double hunting once like even before i got into the episode 
once I hit one, I knew that I had to go all in the first chance I got. And I cannot tell you how much your just your brain is in a vice when you're up there under the lights. You know you have to make a bet that if I get this wrong, my day is done. This was my going for it on fourth down, basically, like where I actually had to do it myself the whole time. And the only like I, I swear it's like a backstop in your head where just from staring at win probability models and having that like very deep gambling knowledge, you just like there's a backstop that says like, look, this is the mathematically right thing to do. I know it's scary, but like all you do is maximizing your odds. And so like that makes the decision easier to swallow as well as execute under pressure. Fair enough. So what you're saying basically is like the betting aspect actually did help in that sense of knowing, you know, like, listen, it's, I'm betting a lot of money here, but at the end of the day, this isn't really money. This is, this is me trying to win a game. So if you're going to say like, Hey, I mean, Holtzauer did this as well. James Holtzauer, he would bet sometimes, you know, in a, in a, at the final jeopardy, he'd bet upwards of 50,000. And for a lot of people like oh, $50,000, I would never risk that amount. But He's just trying to maximize his EV. It doesn't matter to him what the thing is. Like a, it's like chips on the poker table. They're not really yours until they're fully cashed in. So, sorry, last one though. You, v, you versus Holtzauer versus Ken Jennings. Three-way match. So you take the spot of Brad Rutter in that Champions game. One game. You have six months to study. What do you make yourself, odds-wise? Uh... A thousand to one, like, no, it's a thousand it's, to one. It's, it's not even close. Like one thing you really appreciate is just like, one game, like, one game. You can win one game. No, 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 I can't. Like they're like, it's like it, the athleticism and athlete comparison I know is tortured, but there are some people that are just freaks on this thing and just are super spongy and are like custom built to play games like this. I am not. I considered myself like an amateur that I was good enough to hack it with those guys and have like a puncher's chance at a random episode against random contestants. But going against the elite, I do not have a chance. They are on a different like galaxy than I am. All right. Very humble. We, appre- we appreciate that. Uh, no, it's awesome and good to discuss Jeopardy here. I'm obviously a fan of the show. And um, I think a lot of people who are in the sports betting space could draw a lot of very similar comparisons to the game theory that goes on in like DFS or sports betting versus Jeopardy. Because yes, trivia is one component, but like even just talking to you for five minutes here, you know, the buzzers, the daily doubles, the final Jeopardy risk amounts, like being able to be in ahead of position. You know, you mentioned the going hunting for a daily double. So there's certain spaces on the board, which are higher likelihood of being a daily double. You know, the $200 questions, typically not 1600, 2000 are so um, crazy stuff. A lot of different comparisons in the the game theory space. And we appreciate uh, picking your brain on it, Colin. Absolutely. I mean, if there's one thing that I thoroughly enjoy at this point, it's, you know, finding games, breaking them down into their distinct components to figure out what can I do to maximize my chance of success. And each of those distinct components is what I've done in my time at Fantasy Labs. It's what I do with Jeopardy. And it's definitely something that I'm hoping to roll out with Betscope. Are we going to see you at the MIT Sports Loan Analytics Conference in 2022? I mean, we have, if nothing else, we have to do the cigar bar return. It's was, like, it's, it's a holy site. I mean, that's our, like, that that's our pilgrimage. So like we, we, we owe it to make the return. So I feel like there is a good chance that uh, I will be back there. I'm missing like the social interaction um, of, of that event from every year that I just didn't get this year. So 
I definitely plan on being there as well. It'll be good to see you again in person, but um, we'll leave it with our closing question that we ask every single one of our guests, Colin. If you could go back five years and talk to a previous version of yourself, what piece of advice would you give to your old self? Um, probably like whatever you're stressing about in the moment, don't worry about it. It all works out better than you think. I think like ever, I mean, we live in an age now of just basically constant anxiety from a thousand different forms. Uh, and also it's so quaint to think about the anxieties of five years ago versus now in terms of like, okay, you have no idea how it's going to go for, from here. But, um, I think there's, you know, ever like, everyone has anxiety about how things will turn out in the future in general. And we stress about this in our daily lives. And like, if you can only go back and see how much like none of it is actually worth stressing over, that's something I try to remind myself now, where I basically run that exercise uh, to thinking of me about the five years from now, where it's like, whatever I'm worried about now, do I think this will matter in five years? Is this worth stressing over and optimizing and just like getting the fine details right? No, it's never as bad as you think you are. Just make decisions accordingly, go on with your life and like, it will turn out just fine. So stop sweating and stressing over whatever you're stressing about. Did you run that uh, through your head when you were in the green room at Jeopardy? Oh God, no, I was stressed to the max, <laughs> like not even close. That's Colin Davey, Jeopardy champion. Not many people can say that. Very jealous of that. The founder of Betscope as well. You can visit that at betscoper.com. Or if you're listening six months from now, it's probably a new URL as we're going to try to convince Colin. Yeah, we'll get that sorted out. No problem. Appreciate your time, Colin. Uh, Thanks for for joining us this week. This has been episode 30 of Circles Off. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review five stars and we'll talk to everyone next week.